Well, welcome. It is a beautiful weekend. It's a beautiful time of year. Uh, anybody getting out and enjoying the weather? Yes. Anybody enjoying staying inside and watching the Olympics? Oh, preseason football. Man, it's all around amazing. I love watching the Olympics. Um, I just like watching sports when you're just at that elite level, even sports that I would never normally watch. Like, I'm not normally going to watch gymnastics. Honestly, I'm not going to watch swimming outside of the Olympics. But I love watching it during the Olympics. Like, it's just this heightened sense of competitiveness, and uh, I really enjoy it. Uh, I was watching, as probably all of you, all of us were this week, um, watching swimming, um, uh, watching, uh, what is it, Kate Ledecky just destroy everybody, which is a lot of fun. Um, Phelps continues to um, just do what seems to be impossible when you put the whole, his whole career into perspective. Uh, but as I was watching, specifically the swimming, um, I, it just kind of caught my attention how much comparison we do uh, with Olympic athletes. Like, like how much we compare them to one another and how much we compare them to athletes of previous generation, generations and of other sports. You know, like, particularly, I, not that I necessarily should feel bad, but I felt bad um, for Ryan Lochte, if you know swimming and you know him. Um, Ryan Lochte has 12 Olympic medals, which places him on the all-time list. At, he's tied for eighth. That includes men and women, summer and uh, winter Olympics. Like in history, he's tied for the eighth most medals um, of, of any Olympian to ever live and play um, and participate in Olympic sports. Tied for eight all time. That is a phenomenal feat. Um, but he swims in the same era as Michael Phelps, right? Who now has 28 medals. Um, and so just, just watching the comparison that he has to deal with, and I actually um, saw an interview with Lochte with um, uh, a guy named Faraday, who's normally a golf commentator. I don't even know why he was doing this interview with, with Lochte, but, um, but, but he was asking him if he enjoyed being a, a swimmer at the same time as Michael Phelps. And his answer was, you know, kind of to say yes and no. Um, yes, because he was like, I thrive on competition. I mean, any athlete at that level thrives on competition. And he was like, there's certainly a lot of competition swimming with, uh, with Phelps. But he said also, no, because if I was swimming at any other time, I would be the Phelps, uh, of that generation. And so, so many times we, we compare these athletes, which is kind of absurd when you think about it, because I mean, a lot of us played sports in here. Um, as far as I know, no one went pro. Um, we might have had a few college athletes in here. I, I mean, like, you know, just to make it to college um, it is so difficult to do for high school athletes. And then to make it on to professional level. And then to make it to just to be able to go to the American Olympic qualifying meet and participate is beyond what even some of the best athletes will ever accomplish to make it to the Olympics um, means that you are so elite. You are in such a other class. Um, you are one of the greatest athletes who are living on the face of the earth. Like out of 7 billion, you rank like the, the fraction is so tiny. 
I mean, there's just a few people even in your class. It's unbelievable. But we love to compare these athletes to their predecessors or to other athletes, even in other sports. Um, and, and it's just something that we do, which rightfully so, they're all on a similar stage at the same time. But, um, you know, I think we do that in our own lives. I, I don't think what we do to them as Olympians is somehow unique. I, I think we do it to ourselves and to other people every day. We compare the people we interact with um, with with others who we have interacted with in the past. Um, we, we compare our friends and, and the kind of relationships we have to the kind of relationships we had with other friends at different times in our lives. And I think when we look in the mirror, we do the same thing. We compare ourselves to some other standard, whether that's a living being that lives in your house or next door or in the next cubicle, or whether it's some fantasy being that doesn't actually exist um, but it's, it's an ideal that we would like to aspire to. And I think we fall into that same routine of comparisons. And most of the time, it's a, in a negative light. But we're going to make some comparisons today as well, um, as we study, as we read, as we think. And uh, a lot of times when we read the Bible, and I hope you do, you make comparisons between your life and the lives of those that are represented. Sometimes the Bible um, gives us examples, and those examples are the wrong examples, and we compare how we stack up and how we should do better. Sometimes those examples are the right examples that we're trying to live up to. And so um, we're going to do a little comparison today, but I hope today it's one of those comparisons that um, helps to spur up and draw out life in us and understanding uh, as, as we think about what God is doing in our hearts and our lives. And so if you'll open with me, if you have your Bibles, to John chapter 9. Maybe you brought a paper Bible like me. Uh, if you've got a phone or tablet and you want to open up your Bible app, or um, our verses will be up here on the screen for us as well. So what I just want to do is I want to read seven verses, and then we'll just kind of perspective into place, and we'll make some observations as we normally would. And so we're going to be in John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And this is of our seven-part series called Signs, as we look at the seven signs or seven supernatural acts or miracles that Jesus performs that John records for us. So it says this, starting in verse 1. As he, this is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Uh, chapter 9 is one of my favorite portions of the Gospel of John. If I were honest, I think chapter 6, my, all, my, my all-time favorite. Um, we, we've already spent two weeks in chapter 6 and barely even covered half of it. I, I love chapter 6. Chapter 9 might be number 2 for me. Um, and the whole chapter, all 41 verses, is one story. 
it's all centered around Jesus and this man. And then after he heals them, their interactions with the community around them. Um, we don't have time to cover 41 verses, right? I do good to cover like six, seven, eight in a message. We would be here uh, all day if I tried to cover 41 verses. Um, there is so much rich um, reality and truth in this chapter. And we're just not going to be able to cover it all. And so if you're in the habit of reading, um, maybe you already have a reading plan, and that's great. If you're not in the habit of reading the Bible on a regular basis, maybe this week you make John chapter 9 your focus. Um, 41 verses take you three, four minutes, depending on how fast you read. And uh, you could read it every day. Just spend a couple minutes and just think about it and meditate on it. Maybe if you like to journal, you can write about it. Um, or maybe you want to just take it 10 verses at a time. But, but if you don't have a habit of reading, maybe John chapter 9 would be a great place to start that this week, just because we're not going to cover everything that we could today, um, because we'll just be limited in time, and we want to make sure we really focus in on what, what, what's really important. So let me give you some perspective. Right? John chapter 9 um, does not live in a vacuum of space, um, where Jesus randomly finds some guy, heals him, story moves on, and, uh, and, and we forget about it, right? The life and ministry of Jesus is rooted in history. It's rooted in a culture. Uh, it's rooted in, in relationships and reality, uh, and it's rooted in conflict. We've already seen a lot of that as we've been walking through parts of the Gospel of John. The conflict um, that takes place between Jesus and other people. Sometimes that conflict is, is outward, ex- external, particularly between the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day and how he confronted some of the false beliefs that they had. Sometimes the conflict is internal as people are confronted with the reality of who Jesus is and they have to make a decision. Will I believe in him and follow him or will I turn and go back living my own life? And sometimes that conflict is internal. We see it in the crowd. We even see it in the disciples as well as they're still learning and trying to grasp who Jesus is and and how this is all going to play out. So John chapter 9 lives in a setting, in a real world setting. And if you were to go back and look through um, specifically John chapter 8, you'll see that Jesus has just been in conflict with the religious leaders of his day. Matter of fact, he's been inside the temple, the Jewish temple, and has been discussing with some of these religious leaders um, about who he is. And they've been asking questions. They've been trying to challenge assumptions. And, and they've been trying to push Jesus to say something that would justify them being able to kill, them, kill him. And we learned back in chapter 5 that um, the religious leaders were already upset enough that they were plotting his murder. And they're always pushing and challenging Jesus, and he is always pushing and challenging back. So there's been this long, drawn-out discussion and confrontation with these religious leaders about who Jesus is and his authority in this world and how they have become misguided and their, their beliefs and their values and their worldviews have been skewed away from what matters most. And rather than focusing on God and who he is and what he's doing in this world, they begin to focus on what God can do for them and their place in this world and their authority and status. And Jesus has been trying to confront that. Jesus, the last verse 
of chapter 8. It's not on your screen. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That's how chapter 8 ends. That's how this new story that we're covering today begins. There has been this tension, this conflict, and this was not a private affair. These discussions were watched by hundreds, maybe at certain points, thousands of people. So every time Jesus um, answers their question beyond their ability to comprehend, every time he returns a question and they don't have an answer, the crowd's watching and their respect for these religious leaders is slowly dropping. And this is what's leading them towards wanting to kill Jesus. So Jesus has just had this confrontation and he walks out the temple. And now the stage is set for our story. The religious leaders didn't stay. They're following. The crowd didn't stay. They're following Jesus as well. When Jesus performs this miracle, there is a large audience to see what's taking place. And it's all surrounded in a context of confrontation as these religious leaders uh, are trying to figure out how to handle what to do with Jesus. And Jesus is trying to speak truth into their life. And so this, this miracle doesn't happen in a vacuum. And we'll see how it all ties together when we get to the end of chapter 9. We'll have to skip a few things. But I, I want to look at a few things first um, in those passages we first read. And so um, John chapter 9, starting again in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, it's really easy for separated by 2,000 years and a lot of advancements in science and technology and medicine to scoff at questions like these, right? To be like, oh, those ignorant disciples, right? That's not why this guy was born blind. Like, uh, first of all, how could this guy have sinned pre-birth to cause himself to be blind? Like, what, what kind of sin would his parents have to have done in order for the, the, this baby to be punished with blindness, now, we understand certain aspects of um, physical conditions differently than they did, no doubt. But we're not all that different. Here's a conversation that'll happen on a regular basis. You see a homeless guy, and you ask, what? Wonder whose fault it is that he's there. I wonder if it's his fault, if he's addicted to drugs, if he's lazy. Or I wonder if it's someone else's fault. Somebody did something to him, took advantage of him. When we see problems in the world, we ask the same kind of questions. When we see people uh, struggling, whether it's homelessness, mental challenges, emotional challenges, relational challenges, we want to know whose fault is it? Are they just selfish? Or were they abused? We're really not that different. We have some of these things a little mapped out, a little better. But for the most part, we we kind of fall into the same trap. And it was the disciples' belief that all difficulties and disabilities were a result of sin. Now, in the big picture, it's true. As sin entered in the world, in the Garden of Eden, um, 
That's where disease and death and sickness and imperfection came. So in some sense, that, that is true in the big picture that, yes, we could boil all problems back down to sin in the end as it fractured us and this world from God's original intention. But on a one-on-one specific level, it's not always that simple. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We're going to really hit that in a little bit. And Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So what is Jesus trying to say here? What is he trying to communicate to his disciples? Uh, I think the biggest thing um, is that Jesus is trying to get his disciples to focus on a little bit on the here and now. On what Jesus is trying to accomplish. And Jesus, throughout the book of John, and if you were to read the Gospel of John and maybe a few sittings, it would start to become more apparent. Jesus is constantly trying to prepare his disciples for his death. And they constantly don't get it. Jesus is regularly speaking about what's to come and his disciples just don't understand. Because for a lot of the first century Jewish world, the Messiah, the anointed one, the sent one, was going to come and establish an eternal kingdom. But their mind was on a worldly kingdom. And so for them, when the Messiah came, it would always be light from then on. That, that their world would always be bright. Their future would always be bright when the promised one came. And they had a hard time understanding that the kingdom Jesus was establishing looked different. And so this is one of the ways I think Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what's coming. Most of the Gospel of John takes place very late in the life and ministry of Jesus. So even though we're only in chapter 9, doesn't really mean we're actually at the halfway point. We're nearing that time. We're, we're less than a year out for Jesus. There's three Passover dinners mentioned in the Gospel of John. The last one is on the night of Jesus' arrest. We've already covered the first two. We've already passed them. So we're within a year of this time frame. And I think Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what's coming. So Jesus, in typical fashion, um, goes beyond what we expect. We'd expect Jesus to say something like, open your eyes. We'd expect Jesus to reach out and touch the man. But Jesus, in unconventional fashion... But what we start to come to expect from him um, does something different. Moves, uh, kind of moves our point of aim from what we're looking for. He spits, makes mud, anoints the man's eyes, and tells him to wash, and he sees. Now here's what happens next. This man begins celebrating, and the world sees it. Matter of fact, the community around him starts asking questions. Is this the man that was born blind? Some would say, yes, it's him. And others would go, nah, I think it's a guy just like him, though. 
Uh, that doesn't make sense. Well, now the religious leaders get involved and they bring this man in for questioning. And they want to know who was it that healed you and how did he do it? So this man gives his honest testimony, his honest answer. This is what happened. This is what he did. And they, but they don't believe him. And they don't believe that he was ever actually blind. So later in chapter 9, he, they call in his parents. And they question his parents. Is this your son? Yes, that's our son. Was he really born blind? Yes, he was really born blind. How can he see now? The parents get scared and they go, I don't know. He's an adult. Ask him. So they go back to this man and they ask him again. Tell us what happened. Tell us who did this. Tell us what took place. Verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Can you imagine the sting of that question? This is in front of a large crowd, a group of people who have constantly been humiliated by Jesus because as they try to trick him, he's too smart for them. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man, the the formerly blind man, answered, This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. So this man standing there, is amazed at what he sees. At what he's seeing take place. Here are these religious leaders who are questioning him. And the more they question, the more he begins to realize what's going on. These religious leaders have begun to recognize something about Jesus that they're not willing to admit. We skipped it. I'm going to read one quick verse for you. It won't be on your screen. Some of the Pharisees, that's part of the religious leader group, said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Meaning, uh, Jesus is once again healing people on the day that they didn't think you should do that. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, and they began moving forward on this. But even the religious leaders were divided. They said, anyone who would heal someone on the Sabbath, the day of rest, where you're not supposed to be doing work, surely isn't from God. I mean, he broke God's rule. He couldn't be from God. But the other half were going, how could he not be from God? Have you seen what he's done? And even they were wrestling with it. And so this blind man, as he's standing before him, is amazed. He just recently got sight, but he can see the truth obvious to him but these religious leaders either can't see it or won't see it verse 35 jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him he said do you believe in the son of man jesus answered 
And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So the Son of Man is a term that Jesus is very fond of um, for a couple reasons. One, in the Old Testament, about 600 years before Christ would ever be born, um, a prophet named Daniel began writing about what it would be like one day when the Anointed One came, when God fulfilled the promise he had made to his people. And the Son of Man term that he used as kind of a generic, um, rather than than uh, giving a specific name, just kind of uh, almost like a generic pronoun for this promised one. So the Son of Man began to develop um, uh, kind of a, a life of its own in, in understanding what it would be like when the promised one came. But it's also because the Son of Man was a really vague term and Jesus define it how he wanted. Because a lot of these people had preconceived ideas of what it was going to mean when Jesus came. Jesus is trying to redefine it for them. And so the Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite terms to use for himself because it connects him to the prophecies of old, but it's general enough that it gives him freedom to define it how he wants. So now let's play the comparison game that we talked about earlier. Several weeks ago in John chapter 5, we read about another healing. The pool of Bethesda, where Jesus is and he sees a man next to a pool. And after having a conversation with this man, Jesus says, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And this man who had been, the Bible says, disabled and invalid for 38 years, gets up, takes up his mat, and walks. The religious leaders bring this man in for questioning as well. They ask him, why are you carrying your mat and walking? Because, again, according to their rules, you weren't allowed to carry your mat on the Sabbath. That was considered work. We've explained that before. We won't go into it today. And he says, the man who healed me told me to carry it. I said, who is he? And he goes, I don't know. John chapter 5, verse 14 says this. Uh, This may be on your, yeah, it'll be on your screen. Afterward, Jesus what? Found him. Remember that. Afterward, Jesus found him. In the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. We talked about that that week, about how um, needing physical healing is really insignificant compared to the spiritual healing that we need. That's what Jesus is talking about, saying, Don't let your experience with me stop at getting your legs fixed. There's something else I want to do in you. 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This man had been given a new chance at life. Jesus had physically healed him and was offering to spiritually heal him. This man didn't seek out Jesus. Jesus found him. And as soon as Jesus said those words... He went and pulled on Jesus. He turned Jesus in to the religious authorities. Those who had been questioning him going, we want to know who's responsible for breaking our rules, which we interpret as God's rules. And this man's response to meeting Jesus was, I'll get myself out of hot water by telling on Jesus. So they can turn their attention towards him, 
and not me. Now let's compare it to this blind man. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. If you go back to the beginning of the story, after Jesus had prepared, was answering his disciples, preparing to heal this man, he told his disciples, um, as long as I'm in the world, there's light, because I am the light of the world. And then he finds this guy and, and he confronts him about his belief. You have seen him, Jesus says. And the man's response is, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This blind man hadn't just seen Jesus with his eyes physically. I mean, he had now. But he had seen something else. He had gone from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. He had seen Jesus in a new realm. And I told you that this story happens in context, right? That Jesus had just walked out of the temple. There had just been this confrontation. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees, that's religious leaders, near him, heard him, heard these things, and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So even this healing miracle fits into a context that Jesus is still trying to teach. And he's still trying to teach the crowds and his disciples and the religious leaders and those who are around. That there are two ways to see in this world. There's physical sight and spiritual sight. When somebody doesn't have physical sight, it's obvious. And we see it, we know it. But sometimes spiritual blindness can be a a little more deceiving. After all that Jesus had done and said and taught, the religious leaders end with the question, so are we blind? Are we blind? Now they weren't talking about physical sight. That's an obvious answer. They don't need help answering that question. They were talking about something deeper. They were talking about their spiritual sight. And the reality is it wasn't, do you see Jesus physically? Do you see him as the light of the world? Do you see him as the light of the world? 
Do you see him for who he really is? The two differences between the two men that were healed. One was healed. Never said thank you, never celebrated. When Jesus confronts him, it's just his opportunity to come into the authorities. But this man has a different response. He believes and worships because he now understands something new, something different about Jesus. Jesus isn't just a miracle worker. He's not just somebody who opens physical eyes. He's somebody who opens spiritual eyes. The eyes of your mind and your heart to know and understand and believe. So the question for us, really, when we boil it down is, do you see? Are you blind? Not physically, but spiritually. You see Jesus for who he really is. Or is he somebody who who's just a miracle worker? Who's just there to fix your legs like the man we ran read about in John chapter 5? Or like the religious leaders, someone to overcome, someone to disprove, someone to to ignore. So the real question for us is do we see? Do you see? Do you see Jesus for who he really is? And as the light of the world, how does he illuminate around you? How does that change the way you see the world around you? How do you go from seeing the world with your physical eyes to seeing it as God intends it? To going and seeing God's movement and plan around the world. The real question is, do you see? Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for the sight that you give and that you offer. And I pray that you would enable all of us to see you for who you really are. And for the courage to be honest about where we find ourselves in life. I want you to keep your eyes closed for a minute. As we move into this time, it's the time that we move into every week, uh, a time of reflection and response and worship. And I want you for a few moments to just reflect on your own life in light of chapter 9, in light of this story. And I'm guessing perhaps that a lot of us will be in a different place. I think the big question for all of us to think about in our own lives is do you see? It's not just about seeing Jesus and the historical facts of his life, but 
seeing him for who he is and what he came to do. If you're wrestling with that, my encouragement is for you to pray and ask God to open your eyes. who has the power to give sight to the blind physically and spiritually maybe you're sitting in here and you say I do see I do see I see Jesus for who he is I know what he came to do I know that he came to to, to usher in God's kingdom by creating a new covenant, a new way that we are in relationship to God, by dying on the cross for us. I believe in Jesus and I worship Him just like the man in the story. So rather than thinking, I already see, so this message isn't really for me. Since I already have spiritual sight, I can move on. Maybe the question that you need to ask yourself is not are you blind, but where are your blind spots? What are those areas in your life that you're really wrestling with and struggling to see God at work? The areas of your life where you're like, I I don't see God at work here. I'm having a hard time seeing what God wants me to do. So maybe your prayer is, God, would you help open my eyes in this situation? Help me to see what you're doing here. When the disciples said, why is this man blind? fault is it? Jesus said, it's no one's fault. God did it, so glory could display so really what Jesus said is it's not his fault or his parents fault it's God's fault but God did it for a purpose for a reason so that in the end his glory and his power could be displayed in this situation this man's life maybe your prayer today is God help me to see what you're doing here so that I can recognize and honor your glory and your power in this situation, even when it's a situation we don't understand and we can't make sense of. There is no area of life or this world that is outside of God's sovereign power. God, what are you doing here? What are you trying to show me? No matter what that disability or difficulty is, whether it's new or it's been there since birth, what are you trying to show me, God? Help me to see you at work. Will you ask God to open your eyes to see you? Lord, would you move in our hearts this morning? I know everyone has a different situation on their mind at this moment. Something at work, something with family, something with a friend. A 
something that another individual is dealing with, something that is happening in our own lives, and everyone has something different on their mind. Would you help us each to see you at work? Would you open our eyes? We can see your power on display. So that it will create in us new belief and new worship. So come to understand your 